Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And today, we are talking to Christopher Yost, one of the gods of adaptation in our business, um, I think. He's worked in comics, animation, film, to name just a few. We got the Thors, we got Max Steel, we got Mandalorian, Cowboy Bebop. In animation, you worked in Star Wars Rebels, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Wolverine and X-Men, Avengers, X-Men Evolution, Batman. I mean, Christopher, you're not messing around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds pretty good when you said it all at once. <laughs> yeah. So welcome, welcome. Thank you for spending some time with us and talking about adaptations with us. It is my pleasure. I am just happy to be a real life working writer. And yeah, yeah like adaptation <laughs> is pretty much everything that I do. Uh, Secret Headquarters is the first thing in a long time that was kind of an original, and I use that in quotes, an original, you know, idea. Mm -hmm. It, uh, you know, like the, the second that I started working on Thor things and the Marvel stuff, like, you know, like, I just became an IP guy, which is okay because I love IP. Like I, I love comic books. I love Ninja Turtles. I love anime. I, I love it all. So like it's yeah. exciting to be able to hopefully, hopefully, you know, translate it and you know, kind of show people what I love about it in different mediums. Yeah, I can't wait to get into kind of the details. So the the audience for our for our podcast are all screenwriters who are working in the industry or coming up but starting to work in the industry. So that's sort of who we're talking to. So we like to kind of get into um, at the beginning of all of this, whenever we talk to, to writers is like, how did you get into the business? Since everyone has such a very different story, it kind of helps to know there is no one way to a screenwriting career. So like, did you go to film school kind of walk us through how you got into writing all the way up to like your first screenwriting job so <clears throat> i did not go well, i did go to film school but sort of so mm -hmm. i went to the university of michigan where i was going to be a computer science major and in about two weeks i realized that's not going to work out that is not going to happen there was a lot of stuff i think it was like you know just like being an idiot you know, being first time in college, like I, I realized you could just take all night classes, mm -hmm. you know, and I just like I loaded my schedule. So every class was at night and that didn't work out at all. Uh, <laughs> I didn't count on still being tired at night. Uh, anyway, so computer science like it. I like building computers, you know, with my brother, we would like play Doom and stuff. So we would like build our own PCs and, you know, coding and C plus and all that stuff like it was not the same thing. So <clears throat> I uh, freaked out a little bit and looked through the old course catalog and found film. And I'm like, hey, I like movies, which I do. <laughs> I, I do like movies. So I got into the University of Michigan's film and video theory program, which, you know, at the time, and it's changed a lot. I've been back since then. And their program's amazing now. But mm -hmm. uh, at the time, it was more or less like, let's discuss these films and mm -hmm. let's be film reviewers, you know, and stuff like that. And again, like there was more, they had some production stuff, but it was like, you know, like two VHS decks taped together so you could cut stuff. And like, it was, totally. it had its challenges, but it was still a growing program. And like I said, they're amazing now. So, but I graduated from University of Michigan with my film theory degree. And I'm like, oh, okay, now what? You know, so I didn't, I didn't realize that I could say, move to LA or move to New York or move to a place that had a actual like film industry. So I did the next best thing, and I got into advertising in Detroit. So I ended up getting a, a job there at one of the local ad agencies, and I made commercials. Like, I was a producer. I did budgets and schedules and dealt with talent and creatives and made car commercials. And it was a pretty sweet gig. Like, I hung out in post houses all the time. We'd occasionally go shoot stuff. Like, I, 
I got to make snowmobile commercials. Like we'd go out to Utah and like just shoot the shit out of snowmobiles, and it was great. (laughs) But at a certain point, I'm like, you know, there's probably more to life than this. So I looked into, all right, if I can produce TV commercials, maybe I could produce something more exciting. So I ended up looking into a, a program at USC called the Peter Stark Producing Program. And they're like a film business program and it's mm-hmm. prestigious and it's you know, really dialed into the industry and all that. And I applied and got in and about two weeks in, I'm like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't it. Like, this isn't like an amazing program, but that wasn't like the itch that mm-hmm. I was trying to scratch. But we had a couple of screenwriters come in occasionally that would, you know, they're guest speakers and talk about the business from the point of view of the screenwriter. I'm like, they seem pretty happy. They seem pretty cool. <laughs> They seem happy. Little did you know. <laughs> Little did I know. Right. But and since then I've gone and spoken to that same class. And I'm like, That's oh yeah, so cool. I see I see the trap now because it's exciting <laughs> and you can tell great stories. And like yeah. students are like, ooh, and yeah, I'm like, I and we had another class that was like, write five pages of a screenplay so you know what it's like to be a writer. <laughs> From the point of view of like a producer and how to deal with uppity writers and all this stuff. And so yeah. like, all right, I'm gonna write my five pages, and then I ended up writing two full screenplays. Amazing. And uh, I just, you know, I loved it. Like, it was fantastic. And like, you know, my my peer reviews and my my professor was uh, Stu Krieger, the guy who wrote The Land Before Time. He's like, this is great. I'll see you at the premiere. You know, I'm like, yes, that's exciting. At the same time, we had to do an internship. And they had a list of internships you could do. And I'm like, yeah, but I know that Marvel has an office out here. And I am a hardcore, long-life Marvel guy. And I'm like, if I can do an internship at Marvel, that's what I want to do. So I kind of like lied and cheated my way into Marvel. And they, I called them. I literally called them. Like I found their number in a phone book, if anyone remembers what that is. Mm -hmm. And I called them up and I'm like, hey, do you need any help? And they're like, "Uh, yeah, actually we do. Can you come in? And like, it was just one of those things that it's it's the worst story in the world because nobody could ever replicate it because it was like that particular moment in time. Marvel was like four people. They had a little office that they shared with a toy company mm-hmm. and they like just licensed all their stuff and they needed somebody that basically like made copies of comic books and put together packets of like informational comic books on like Werewolf by Night, you know, or like yeah. the Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm like, best job ever. Yeah. Best job ever. So I got to sit in the room that was Stan Lee's office that was just filled with like, you know, hundreds and thousands of comic books and I answered phones and I made packets, but I, I got to know like, uh, Avi Arad was in charge at the moment and he had just brought on a couple of weeks earlier, a young guy named Kevin Feige. And, uh, I worked with Craig Kyle, who was kind of overseeing all the animation there. And it was a great group. Yeah. I'm working with Avi right now. So that's funny. And he recently just was telling a story about bringing Kevin in. So it's full circle. That was just last week. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Avi. Avi, uh, I, you know, I would occasionally like, you know, help out on Venom stuff and like Avi mm-hmm. would always be there and like he's just, he's forever Avi. I love yeah, him. Yeah, with his cigar and all of his <laughs> black right. clothes. Yeah. He's, he's, and I, he's committed to the black clothes, that's for sure. <laughs> like he's generally always wearing like a Venom or a Spider-Man cap or yeah. something. I swear he hired me because I wore black to my pitch. <laughs> he was like, oh, I must have something in common with this girl. <laughs> it can't hurt. It can't hurt. You take any edge you can get. Were you writing the entire time while you were in Marvel or while you were working there and writing screenplays or were you just kind of absorbing everything around you? I had written two in the program. And then while I was there, I didn't write because I was just like trying to figure out what was what. And it was only for the summer. 
you know, so like I really just mm. wanted to like make the relationships and try to learn as much as I could and all that. And and they offered me the job full time at the end of the summer. And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to try to like finish the program. So at the very least, I can get the degree because I I'm a good Midwest boy. And like, you know, my mom would be very proud of me if I got my master's <laughs> and everyone in the program is like, you're stupid, dude. Like the whole point of the program is to get a fucking job, like just like take the job. And I'm like, no. But uh, as I was leaving, I left a screenplay on everybody's desk. Craig Kyle, who was overseeing the animation, read it and was like, I like this. You know, and I got an idea for an episode of this cartoon I'm overseeing. Do you want to write it with me? And I'm like, the cartoon is X-Men. And yes. So, like, I got my first gig basically, like, the day my, uh, the program ended. Um, the, the, the Peter Stark thing. Oh, wow. And so I wrote an episode of X-Men Evolution with Craig, and then we wrote, like, three more. And then I'm like, this is the easiest thing in the world. I don't know why people say it's hard to break into Hollywood. What are you talking about? Like, I got a job immediately. (laughs) And then I didn't get another job for a year. And I'm like, oh, shit. And I, yeah, and that stuck with me forever. Like, I'm like, I'm doomed. This is it. I'm moving back to Michigan. I'm going to get a job at The Gap, which, you know, it's good work. And then as I was literally packing my bag to leave, I got a call from the guys who were running uh, the 2003 Ninja Turtle show. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, the X-Men guy said you're good peeps. Like, do you want to you wanna write some Ninja Turtles? I'm like, yes, please, anything. And I ended up writing Ninja Turtles for like a year and a half straight. Like, wow. I, I, I think I wrote like 17 different episodes. And at that point, uh, that kept me in, in L.A., and at that point, Marvel kind of was going to do some more shows. So I ended up working on a Fantastic Four animated series, an Iron Man animated series. And then, you know, that became animated movies for Marvel, at which point Marvel Feature got their act together. They were they had done Iron Man and Incredible Hulk in 2008 and put together their writers program and invited me to join. I feel like I have so many questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a lot. <laughs> like, just a, I just have a random question to go back. Sure. When you slipped those scripts on everybody's desks, yeah, were you like nervous or were you like, I'm going to show them that this is the greatest script ever? Can we talk about what that script was? We don't have to go into this. I'm just so curious. Because it's ballsy this, and it's awesome. Yeah, that's very, that's very ballsy, yeah. So it was just arrogance, you know? Like it of was course. the best script probably that's ever been written, you know? It was... <laughs> called interdimensional basically like the pitch was is like james bond is like batman and he's got a young assistant basically as rob i'm in i'm in yes i just let's go let's, can <laughs> Which, we do this but it, wait it gets better <laughs> oh it uh <laughs> basically like aliens invade james bond goes to save the world but the alien queen that's invading us is super hot and he oh, falls yeah. in love with her and basically like fucks off on the job and now robin has to save the world because his boss is like all hormonal, <laughs> so it—I don't, you know. Like I, I remember getting coverage on it from UTA. Like I had a friend in the Stark program that slipped it to like a guy who does coverage at UTA, and the coverage is like, "This is crazy." Like I love it; it's unproducible, but I highly recommend somebody make it. Mm. You know, I'm just like, all right, like an original IP like sci-fi at like a two hundred fifty million dollar budget. It's a tough sell. You know, like these yeah. are the things I didn't know at the time. Yeah. The funny thing was I used it as a sample for so long to the point where like, yeah, like last year, like I was going to give it to somebody 
And I reread it and I'm like, shit, I think I invented the iPad in this script. Like I had described like this amazing thing where a person was holding a tablet yeah. and you could just swipe through images on it. I'm like, oh, it's a, I guess they invented that now. It's less sci-fi than it was before. But anyway, like the point <laughs> is always have an updated sample. But it, again, like it, it wasn't like a, it was a great sample. It wasn't a great sales piece. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't ever going to be able to go out and sell that. But somebody could read it see what i could do and enjoy it and and somebody did like not and it was and i got a job so it all worked out did you say that you still use that as a sample well i thought about using it as a sample i I thought about trying to sell it right like i thought about like what you know it's like i have some there was an actor that needed like a their their movie fell apart and somebody called me and was like i need a movie right now i need a script like a finished script and like what do you got like shit, I don't have anything because I've just done, like, IP stuff for, like, the mm-hmm. last 20 years. Like, oh, but I've got this thing. Hang on, let me go check it out and see if it holds up. And I'm like, not really. Like, it, it did and it didn't. You know, it's yeah. like I, I would have to do, like, you know, like, six weeks of work on it just to bring it up to snuff, and he needed something, like, right now. And I'm like, yeah. And it was a good lesson to me. It's like, have something ready, you know, like, if those stars ever align. Yeah. Can I ask, too, did you, did you have reps during this time where you're writing on x-men did you end up getting a rep because you were writing on these animated shows or not at all i did not have a rep for a good chunk of time only after i literally had something produced and on tv was i able to get an animation rep wow and then right like it's insanely stupid and hard to like get representation it just is like it and that's the biggest question i get from people on Twitter and all that stuff. It's like, how do you get representation? It's like, good luck, man. I don't produce a show. Like it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and it's just like the fact, like just the inability that people have to get something read is like a major, major, like, you know, problem. Like, how do you get somebody to read something if they don't know you, if you're not coming recommended from somebody else? So I had like an animation rep, like a manager, uh, from the Gotham group. Uh, who was great. Like they, but at that time, like I was basically generating my own work, you know? So there, yeah. he was just like happy to be there, you know, like mm-hmm. I, <clears throat> and then like once I got into the Marvel writers program, like I didn't really need anybody and I wasn't doing animation at that point anymore either. So like we parted ways. And then like, as I was leaving the program, uh, one of the producers, uh, one of the executives at Marvel is like, so we're wrapping up. Like, who's your agent? Are you taking meetings? I'm like, yeah, I don't have an agent. I've never had an agent. He's like, oh, that's bad. You should probably have one. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and they, the Marvel actually helped set me up with people. And Jeremy Latcham, who produced like Iron Man and Avengers and stuff, like he had a guy. And like, so now I'm at Verve Talent with the lovely Adam Levine. And I have a manager as well, Ava Jamshidi over at Industry Entertainment. And they're oh, like, I love Ava. I've known she's her the best. She's the best. She's the best. And they're like my mom and dad and they take mm-hmm. care of me and they, you know, like they, they're fantastic. They actually just came out for the premiere, uh, for secret headquarters in New York. So they Aww. flew out to support me and they're amazing, but they're very different too. Like, you know, Adam Levine is like the scary agent one and Ava is like the, the super knowledgeable nerd one that knows mm-hmm. everybody. Like it's yeah. like they, they work together really well. Uh, I forgot what the question was. I guess it was just where, at what point did you have reps in your career? And, and it's interesting to hear that you were kind of self-generating work at the time. Yeah, it was late in each scenario. So for animation, yeah. it wasn't until after I got stuff produced. And for agent, for feature, it wasn't until after I was already on Thor 2. Like perception-wise in Hollywood, was it t- hard for you to make the jump from animation to live action 
did anyone kind of show resistance to that or were you like i got this we're, we're good to go I think, like, my scenario was unique in the sense that, like, I already knew the guys in Marvel. So mm-hmm. when I went in to pitch to Kevin Feige, he knew who I was. And, again, like, if the pitch was bad, the story would have ended right there. You know, if the script is bad, you know, like, I wouldn't go any further. I think that the only shift I made from animation to feature was I directed a little less on the page. You know, for animation, like, you know, you can call out shots and you can, you know, really like, you know, here in animation, like you're going to have a set of directors and you never know who you're going to get from day to day on what episode. And like, if you want stuff to get on the screen, like spell it out. Whereas Mm -hmm. like for feature, like I I do it a little less because directors want to direct, apparently. (laughs) How dare they? I know it's ridiculous, but let them have their fun. (laughs) So, like, no, I did not have any resistance. The mm-hmm. only thing that I've found is something uh, that another writer and I talk about, a, a lovely writer named Christina Strain, who worked on Magician. She worked on the Unmade Season 2 of Cowboy Bebop. She's worked on Shadow and Bone. She's incredible. And she pointed out the fact that because I jump around so much, like from comic books to animation to TV to feature, I struggle. <laughs> this is now my therapy session, so forgive me. <laughs> No. I'm not, you know, like, I'm not, like, super, like, dialed into any one particular, like, writer's circle, like, writer's group. So, like, again, it's not, like, resistance in getting the jobs. It's just, like, my life as a writer is, like, kind of weird because I jump around a lot. That sounds like a superpower. I mean, that, that sounds amazing. I, I don't think of them any differently because, like, mm-hmm. the live action shit that I do is basically, like, you know, live action cartoons, you know, mm-hmm. like... Like, I'm doing animated stuff. Like, I'm doing adult animated stuff. I'm doing kid animated stuff. Like, I don't, I don't, I've only ever really done, like, one project that, like, didn't have, like, ghosts and aliens and stuff in it. And Mm -hmm. I, it did not work out. (laughs) So, like, the, uh, generally the stuff that I write is all, it doesn't matter what medium it's in particularly, because it's going to be the same stuff. Yeah. I I like that stuff, and I would like to continue writing it. Yeah. And just to be clear, I, I, I. I don't think there's any problem with it. Tasha's working in animation now. We talk about this often, just kind of like sometimes outside of like people outside of writing, like they just kind of pigeonhole people and I don't like it. I think it's stupid. So I was just, yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting because the the animation show I'm on now, it's WGA. I was able to hire three writers for the room and they're all live action people and they're all like, oh, this is exactly like how we break live action. I didn't realize that animation was like this. I'm like, it's the same writing. It's, it's the same writing. <laughs> and we're, it's adult animation, so it's still dramatic. And you know. I did my first writer's room like for TV live action. And a lot of people like came up to me and like asked me, it's like, how do you get into features? I'm like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, how is it different? Like, it's the same exact thing. In fact, yours is harder. So like, I don't like, I like, I felt like an idiot, like working with all these TV writers because like they had to shape fucking characters and arcs and plots across like seasons. And I'm just like, I, I can wrap up a story in 90 minutes. Like yeah. it's like, <laughs> and never touch it again. Like it's, so I, it's, it's the perspective of it is like funny, like, you know, but I mean, again, like, I think it's like the, the glamour of feature or the pay disparity or whatever it is. And I mean, again, it's changed anyway. Like, you know, like there's so many feature people working in TV now and TV is like so awesome. It's like half the feature people that I know are like, we would love to do TV because Mm -hmm. you get to do so much more and you get to have that much more control in theory, you know? So it, um, hopefully all that's changing or it's changing back. I honestly don't know. Like every day I talk to people like, yeah, it's changing. 
I'm like, I just got here, dude. I don't know why. <laughs> don't change it. Shifting into when you adapt certain things, do you feel like there's like a like a special skill that you have or like writers need to have when they start tackling certain projects? Like, do you look at stories differently? Do you feel? We talk about this all the time. And we talked about it with Cowboy Bebop quite a bit. And we talk about it with Marvel. Because, like, Marvel clearly is doing something right in adapting these comic books to live action. Mm-hmm. And Cowboy Bebop, maybe people would have a different opinion on how that went. But, you know, like, the core pitch of it is, like, be true to the spirit of it. You know, it's like there are some things that cannot be changed, like a costume or a ship. Like, you know, like the people that are fans of the original material have certain expectations. But, you know, if you're going to do a like one for one adaptation of every moment and every beat of a book or a comic book or something like that, like it doesn't always work. I would actually say it rarely works because like they are different mediums. So but if you can be true to the spirit of it, like, you know, we don't have to have Tony Stark, you know, captured in Vietnam because that doesn't make any sense and it wouldn't work today. So now it's the Middle East, it's Afghanistan or wherever it was. I don't even think they ever named it. You know, it's like Thor is not a god. He's an alien from a planet. You know, mm-hmm. like he, you know, all of his powers aren't god powers, although that's changed a little bit. Like he's, you know, like a science based thing. You know, it's just like, but if you look at Thor, he looks like Thor. He kind of acts like Thor. You know, and Iron Man, like, acts like Iron Man. And, like, it's just, like, you, even though, like, the details don't always line up, like, you feel it. And you you got to catch that feeling. Yeah. Like, when I did the Avengers animated series, like, my whole goal was to take the comic books and take everything that I loved about them and try to show kids that have never read a comic book what I love about those comic books. Mm-hmm. And if I can do that, you know, then, like, hopefully they'll love it, too. You know, like... But I can't, you know, I can't adapt a comic book like beat for beat, you know, like half of the ones I love. I certainly love my memory of them. But when I go back and read them, because it's from 1971, like it just reads differently. You know, yeah. it reads for a comic book medium and it doesn't read like dialogue necessarily. Like exposition is a killer, you know, and you have to find a way to get information out and make it feel like normal human people are talking. I think that adapting is really taking like what works taking what's important taking the spirit of it taking the best of it and then you know like crafting a story kind of around these things Mm because the story is the story the themes are the themes so how do you make it work in your particular medium yeah can we kind of walk through that adaptation process from the beginning a little bit like say you get a book hey we want you to do thor Thor is, has a huge story arc, multiple story arcs, craziness. Where do you start? Like day one, you have to pitch this idea. So you have to crack your take. Like kind of what is your way to start to just start thinking about how you're going to adapt a piece of material? For superheroes, certainly like the first one's always the easiest one. Although I don't know that Thor was an easy one. Like, and I didn't break that story. So I can't speak specifically to that, that franchise. But I mean, like every superhero has one story that's like pretty straightforward. Like how they became who they are. And for Thor, like the core story was, I'm an arrogant prince who fucks up and my dad humbles the shit out of me and I had to learn to be a hero. All right. So like I had to put aside myself and like I put aside my arrogance and I have to like step up and be, you know, the hero that I'm supposed to be. So, you know, in that case, like his dad takes away his powers and throws him to Earth and he meets Jane Foster. Like, you know, like a Spider-Man origin story, an Iron Man origin story, a Captain America origin story. They're all pretty you know like that's the story you know and like whatever version of that story it is like great second one's harder 
you know, because then it's like, all right, now what? What is that character's journey now, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like it's easy to do like plot stuff. It's like, yeah, a bunch of dark elves are trying to destroy the universe. All right, sure, but like, what is Thor going to do? Like, how does Thor grow in the face of this incredible challenge? That's a little harder because like you kind of told his story. You know, you mm-hmm. kind of told. All right, so now you have to make up another journey. You know, for Thor to go on. Iron Man 3 was particularly successful in this in that they, you know, like, he had become so reliant on his armor, like, he had forgotten, like, who he was, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, uh, sure, that's a great character story. And Iron Man 3, uh, in my opinion, is a great movie and really kind of set the tone for the coming Marvel Universe. Yeah, I loved it, too. I'm adapting a book right now that is called Whales on Stilts, and it's a fantastic book about a little girl named Lily who finds out that her dad... She goes with him for a take-your-daughter-to-work day, and she finds out that he is oblivious to the fact that he works for, like, uh, an evil half-man, half-whale hybrid mastermind that is uh, preparing to invade the surface world with whales on stilts. shit! (laughs) And uh, she now has to kind of save the world, but no adult will listen to her. She's afraid Mm -hmm. to use her own voice. And she goes to her two best friends, who are basically Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Tom Swift, who are these incredible children that, like, save the world, like, every other day. And they're like, yeah, this isn't really our thing. You know, like, I fight zombies and vampires, and he fights aliens and robots, and this is this is your thing. So this little girl has to, like, step up, find her own voice, and tell her own story. And I'm like, I get that. Like, I get that through line. And, I mean, I, and for an animated movie, like, it's perfect. You know, mm-hmm. so, like, that adaptation, some are easier than others. Cowboy Bebop was more challenging. You know, because, like, that was a very episodic series that had, you know, occasional, like, through lines in mythology of, like, you know, Spike and Vicious and all these characters that had a history together. And, like, you know, the overall story of the coming confrontation between these two archetypal characters. But, you know, like, we don't live in a world where episodic really works right now for TV. Like, everybody wants, like, basically one story, you know, across ten episodes. So we did our best to kind of weave those two things in where you can do interesting bounties and fun villains and all this stuff while keeping, you know, like a, 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 a serialized story alive kind of around it, mm-hmm. you know, and whether it was successful or not, I'll let history decide, yeah. but it, it definitely was more challenging, you know, yeah. so like everything has its unique challenges. But I mean, like, I think that for me, when I sit down with something like a Thor or like a Whales on Stilts or like a Cowboy Bebop, it's like, what's the core story you're trying to tell here? And like, what's important to that story? What's important to these characters? Like as a fan of the material, I'm not even talking about other fans, like as me, what is the most important thing to me that if they cut out of this, I'd be furious and probably like insult people on Twitter, you know, like, yeah, Yeah. you know, it's like what has to stay. So for Thor, she probably have a hammer, you know, like she probably like feel like a God, you know, like, you know, like again, like those are super obvious things, but you know, for it's not obvious for anybody. Like, it's not there. We've seen adaptations a million times where they're like, yeah, we're going to take this guy and we're going to put him in space. And you're just like, well, that guy doesn't really belong in space. You know, mm-hmm. like it's you you see the minefields, you see the, the errors of the past. And you try not to recreate them. And and sometimes it's hard, you know, like yeah. sometimes it's hard. And there's like a lot of cooks in the kitchen and there's a lot of producers that say, like, wouldn't it be great if there were aliens, though? You know, it's like, no, this is not a story about aliens. Yeah. Do you think like the advice there is to, to have so much faith in sort of the version you're going to tell that when people start saying, let's put it on Mars and let's introduce aliens, you can 
you can say very confidently why that shouldn't be the case. Like, what yeah. do you feel like is the, is the advice there for writers who are getting those multiple cooks in the kitchen on, a, on an adaptation that could go a million ways? I think you stick to your guns as much as humanly possible. Like, this is the, the core story we're trying to tell is this. You know, it's not about aliens. It's not about Mars. It's really about this struggle that this person is having. And anything that kind of, like, distracts from that struggle or anything that, like, we have to also have faith in the IP to a certain extent, too. You know, like, that's another argument you can use. It's like, mm. the IP got it right. It has a fan base of X amount of people, you know? So, like, let's let's honor them. Like, use words like that. Like, yeah. we're really trying to honor the IP. <laughs> we're trying to honor the fans. And, and it's not bullshit. Like, I am. Like, I really am. But, I mean, yeah. like, you get, like, Hollywood is a crazy place. And you get a lot of, like, crazy things thrown at you, you know? And, like, the more you can do to, like, you know, stick to what's working, you know, like, the better. Yeah. Yeah, speaking to that, because again, I, I'm currently adapting an anime that you just absolutely cannot translate. The, the voice doesn't work currently, especially as a live action. Like it, a lot of things aren't working and I'm sure you had a very similar issue with Cowboy Bebop. And I'm kind of curious how you thought about that. Like how do I translate it so that it works for live action first of all, so that actors can actually say this to a camera and it actually makes sense, um, but also appeal to the fans and appeal to the thing that you love. Like. What do you feel like, and I don't even know the question here because it's, it's, the, it's the big struggle with, with these kinds of adaptations, but like, what do you feel like is the first step to being able to translate something that's so untranslatable, right? You really do have to adapt it to your new medium. I think that at a certain point, and I've got one that's like it, like that I'm working on right now. And I'm like, I can't do this one for one. I can't, I can't, because it'll never get made. And mainstream audiences won't get it. Like they just won't. And it's, it's not like it's not on Thor two, not to not to go back to that one. Now let's go. One of my favorite stories that I ever tell is Anthony Hopkins like summoned me to his trailer, like and everyone was freaked out. Like it was his first day on set. Like I literally a PA came and got me in the woods. We're like shooting like a battle scene. And he looked around. And he's like found me and he's like, "Are you Chris Yost?" I'm like, "Oh God, yeah. Why? What's the matter?" He's like, "Anthony Hopkins wants to see you in his trailer right now." So I looked at Craig and Kevin, and they're like, you better go. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So I trudge through the woods, like up the hills, like there's explosions going off. And I get to the trailer. Somebody standing outside the trailer is like, he's waiting for you inside. I'm like, okay. And like I go inside, and like I turn back to see, and they close the door and that. <laughs> and I turn the corner, and there's Anthony Hopkins sitting at a table, hands folded, wearing a full suit. And he's like, please have a seat. I'm like terrified. And I sit down. He had the, the current script revisions that had just gone out and he's like I'm just trying to uh, let you know that uh, I've received the current pages but I will not be performing the current pages and I'm like okay you know and it was it, it was a whole thing and like other scenes depended on the changes and like at the end of the day like Hopkins point was is like his process as an actor as somebody who's not necessarily like a genre guy is like to take the insane things that like I had written mm -hmm. and try to make them work for a human being Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just like, you have a fair point here, Sir Anthony mm -hmm. Hopkins. Like, I, like all the respect in the world for one of the greatest actors that's ever lived. Like, yeah, not bad point. So, like, at the end of the day, like, we are telling stories about humans, even if they're aliens or other dimensional beings or like whatever. Like, they have to be human. Like, they have to be somebody we can connect to and relate to. And not everybody needs that. Like, you know, like I, I can read a story about an interdimensional AI being that like, you know, thinks in ones and zeros and probably be fine, you know, but like, you know, for a mainstream audience, normal people, like 
you have to find a relatable point of entry for these characters. You have to have dialogue that people will understand from a human point of view. And look, all the Marvel movies, you're saying crazy shit left and right, you know, but like, you know, like Hopkins point was, is like, you have to find a way, Mr. Ryder, to like make it work so that people can understand it. Mm-hmm. And I like that stuck with me very hardcore forever. You know, yeah. whatever the property is, the more insane it is, the less likely you can do like a, a perfect adaptation of it that that is going to hit for a mainstream audience. Like you can make a perfect adaptation of it that is 100% true to the comic book and the people who will love the comic book or the anime will be like, fuck yeah, they did it, right? But then for a mainstream audience, they may struggle with that. You know, mm-hmm. so like you're serving a few different masters in every scenario here. But, you know, if you lean into this character as a human being, you know, with and how do I connect with this person? How do they express themselves in a way that people can understand? Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It's yeah. That's why it's we get easy. paid the big bucks. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> All right, switching gears a little bit. Unless Josh, you want to? You look like you're about to ask a question. No, I was gonna switch. I was gonna. I was gonna switch gears. I was gonna. Go. I was gonna switch to to Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok. Oh, um, sure. I was gonna do. Uh, I was gonna do a bigger switch, but yeah, keep going. <laughs> Could you could you talk about at what stage you came to that script and like what the expectations were for your drafts? Because I know there are a lot of writers on Ragnarok, for example. There were one, two, three, four and a half writers. Uh, there are actually more writers on Thor too. Four um, and a half. Okay. The point five. The point five was Taika. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. And and every actor that literally walked in that set, from my understanding. Yeah. I was the last writer on Thor 2, and the executive on Thor 2, Craig Kyle, had basically was transitioning from executive to writer, because he and I had written animation before, we had written comic books before, so uh, Kevin gave a shot on Thor 3, so we, and, but there was a big gap between the two, like there was like a chunk of time, so like we basically like, everyone took a year off and just thought about like what should Thor 3 be, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe is an ever-evolving place. There are versions that we put forward of Thor 3 that were batshit insane, that had, like, all kinds of Thanos stuff, all kinds of Time Stone stuff, all kinds of Celestial stuff. Like, it wow. was, like, all insane and great and exciting, you know? And and more or less, like, as plans for, like, Avengers and stuff evolved, you know, it's like, it came clearer into focus what Thor needed to do for like the larger picture. It wasn't a lot, you know, like at the end of the day, it's like we wanted to tell a good Thor story and leave Thor in a particular place and Hulk as well. At first, like we wanted to use Hulk and then we couldn't use Hulk and then we could use Hulk and Dr. Strange and all this stuff. It's like, you can have Dr. Strange for a day. Mm -hmm. It's like, shit, I wrote him into 90 pages. Like that's, we're going to have to make some changes. So it was an ever evolving process, but you know, like we delivered a script. I always say that, if you like a lot of what happened in Thor, like, I'll take some responsibility for that. If you like that it was super fucking funny and, like, you know, like, then, you know, I'm Eric Pearson and Taika are, are, are you know, the, the heralds of, of that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, again, like, the, the, the WGA arbitration process is what it is. But, I mean, like, you know, like, I, I think the core foundation of it all was our draft. But... You know, like it's like I said, it's a crazy process. Like that movie turned out great. Like it's a beloved movie. Like it, yeah. it really mm-hmm. was a reset on Thor. And I mean, we knew that we wanted to be funnier, like more Guardians and less like you know Gladiator. Mm-hmm. And you know, mission largely accomplished. 
Like it was, it was a fun time. I, but even our script, like Valkyrie was different. Like we brought in Nidavalir and like uh, Itri the Dwarf earlier. Like there was a lot, even in our draft, that was either got shifted to Avengers or just changed, period. But, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, the core of it that like, you know, Thor, Hulk, Valkyrie, Loki kind of go on this journey together. Like it's, it's pretty, pretty representative there. You're so calm in talking about all yeah. the many drafts you wrote and threw out, but I would imagine that time is just filled with absolute anxiety of trying to find the movie because there are, as you say, like a million versions you could do, even though the core is probably, you know, kind of what a starting point and end point needs to be. Was that very stressful? Because there's also deadlines with Marvel, right? Like you got to get your movie out at this time because they're announcing it at Comic-Con. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it... It, it sure, sure, it has its stresses, you know, but at the same time, it's like I'm trying to find the movie with a group of people that like I love a group of people that are all super smart that also want to find the movie. And we're yeah. doing, you know, like it's it's hard to call it a job. Like I've certainly had assignments that were jobs, you know, but the Marvel stuff never feels like a job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I think that when you're on set doing production rewrites, like there's certainly some stress to that, like as you're like in a corner, like on a location, like trying to like hammer out pages because you're going to shoot them the next day. Like that's a different kind of writing. Um, in this case, like we did have some time and I like, as it happens, like I'm a particular, like I feel like I'm a fairly fast writer so I can turn stuff around like pretty quick. Like, you know, as far as like a full draft. Yeah. But just finding like, you know, like the, the, the core arc for the character, you know, like the core story that works within the Marvel cinematic universe that still feels like a Thor story. You know, but like also like I think Captain America Winter Soldier um, really kind of showed that people and shocker, you know, it's like let's involve some more people. You know, it's like let's let's get Hulk in there. Let's get Doctor Strange in there. Like, let's have some fun with the universe. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was like the biggest the biggest change from Thor 2 to Thor 3. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's funny you say that because now kind of thinking back on it, that is what's so fun about so much of with Marvel is like, you're like that Hulk, for instance, in Thor three, it's like, he was hilarious. It was amazing. I love it. I love seeing that crossover where people are kind of jumping from movie to movie, which I think now we probably take for granted, but I think we do. And it's hard to go back. Like, you know, Thor yeah. four, like was more of a Thor story, you know, but I mean, like it, like the fun of the Marvel universe is sometimes the fun of, of seeing these people kind of collide. Yeah, for sure. For me anyway. Uh, so it was, it was great to be able to do that. Like, it was great to be able to have a Thor versus Hulk battle. It was great to be able to have, like, Loki have to deal with Doctor Strange. Like, it's yeah. like, these are, like, totally. it's like candy. Like, my yeah. God, I do this all day. Like, I'm shocked they pay me for it. Like, yeah. it's just incredible. <laughs> like, having grown up with that stuff, like, Star Wars and Marvel, like, to be able to work in these worlds is just, like, this is all stuff that me and many other people would do for free if I did not have a family and a mortgage. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much, but... I do want to jump into Secret Headquarters in just a minute, sure. but I, I also wanted to ask, I, I mean, you, you may have covered this already, but I guess advice to writers who are jumping into adaptations, like, is there like a piece of, I guess you kind of already covered this in terms of like keeping with the spirit, but is there anything more if, if there, if there's someone who's tackling something that like, there's like a nugget of advice you would give? I would say know the material better than anybody else. Be able to answer any question about the material from any fan. Mm-hmm. Like, because if you can do that, because nobody knows it better than the fans, like if you can do that, then you can answer any question any executive will ever have or any producer or whatever it is. Like, know in your mind, know what's going to work and what's not going to work on the screen and in like a mainstream adaptation of it. 
and that means like basically like being true to the core stuff that we talked about, but also it's like, this is not something you need. Like, yeah. this is like not something like I'm doing a thing where everybody in this universe had powers and I'm going to adapt it where one guy has powers. And will I take a shit ton of heat for that from like the core fans? Probably, you know, but like it, it will, n- it's not producible otherwise, yeah. you know, like you can't do it. Like I, or at least I haven't found a way, you know, like it's, but you know, at the same time, like does the core of the story change? No, it doesn't. Yeah. It just mm-hmm. doesn't. And I mean, like to have the to have the the courage, you know, and the the strength to kind of like hold on to that. It's like I have a vision for this. I I know it's going to work. And yes, yeah, some people aren't going to be happy with it, but hopefully, we can introduce this to a, a larger audience that's going to see how fucking awesome it is. And they can certainly go back and look at the anime or the comic book or whatever it is and, and enjoy that as well. But this is like, how do I introduce people to this property, you know, in a way that like can actually work? Yeah, that's that's the big struggle. And I, I feel like one thing, one question that came up for me in, in thinking about that exact thing was what like, is there one thing you can hit on where? I mean, you've worked on huge properties, Thor, Cowboy Bebop, and people have opinions about those things. Do you have one thing where the internet was so extremely angry, angry with the choice that you made, but you knew it was a choice that had to be made for the show or movie? And can you just walk through, like, from a writing standpoint, why that choice had to be made? I don't want to get into it too deep, but, like, the character of Vicious in Cowboy Bebop is certainly, you know, like, something that... I don't know how many people got super angry about it, but, like, he wasn't necessarily recognizably Vicious. Because, and we talked about this at length, like if you watch, I don't know how familiar you are with Cowboy Bebop, but there's a character in it, the main villain of the show, that is named Vicious. Mm-hmm. And he is, for all intents and purposes, a vampire. Like he's not a particularly human relatable character with like, you know, like hopes and dreams and all of this stuff. Like he's awesome and I love him and he's got a sword and a giant bird and like he's amazing. And so like, you know, like we made the decision basically like, to tell the story of how Vicious got to that point versus like day one Vicious is that way. Like there were certainly hints of that and his appearance was similar and like all these things, but like he had a little journey to go on before he could get to full Vicious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that people responded to it, you know, as we had necessarily hoped, you know, and that's, and it's fair, you know, because we weren't putting on screen necessarily what they knew. Yeah. You know, and that relationship then with Spike Spiegel, the main character, changed because of that. And like, you know, all this story of vicious but not sort of vicious, you know, like played out. And, you know, it's a legitimate good story, but it's not necessarily a story that like Cowboy Bebop fans like were looking for. Mm-hmm. It's choice, you know, yeah. like. But I can hear I can hear that conversation going on in the writer's room. Like you can't just introduce this vampire with a cool bird and a cool sword and then the story just goes. Like you have to understand why this person exists and why this cool shit exists because it feels maybe so random if on you know shot one, that's what they look like and that's how they behave. Right, because at a certain point, it's just like, well, then you're just fighting like the Terminator. Yeah. yeah. And, and as much as I love the Terminator, you know, like it is just like a force of nature, which, you know, like it's hard to fill 10 hours with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. All right, Josh. I'm, take, I'm doing it. Take I'm so it. excited. All right. So, Secret Headquarters, yes. recently released on Paramount+. Plus. Did I read, and I might have dreamt this, but I might have read on Twitter, did you have this idea like 10 years ago? Did I read something about that, that this idea has been kicking around in your brain for a long time, or you wrote the script a long time ago? Or 
Can you just talk about how Secret Headquarters came to be? And just let me say, before you answer, I did watch this with my daughter, and we loved it. It was freaking awesome. Great. She's six years old, and it's like it's so up my alley as well. So, It is yeah. a movie meant for fathers and daughters to watch together and enjoy. Aww. It is like it's a family movie. Like it's a kid's movie. Like it is. And I mean, like the hope is, is that adults can enjoy it as well, you know, yeah. but it really is like, you know, in the, the true sense of the word, let's say it's meant to be a family movie. Like totally. the problem with doing a superhero movie these days at any level is that you're instantly going to get compared to all the Marvel stuff, all the DC stuff. And we did not have $200 million, you know, but I mean, like we wanted to tell a good story and something that kids would enjoy, like in a movie that when I was eight, nine, 10, that I would watch and be mm-hmm. like, this is awesome. You know, like that was always the hope. So when I was working the Marvel writers program, uh, I talked to Adam Levine, an agent at Verve talent, and they signed me and they're like, all right, come in and pitch us like what you want to do. Like what's the next thing for Chris Yeris after you're done with Thor two. And I went in and there was a whole presentation with a bunch of agents and I pitched them like 20 stories that were all just like not Thor. Cause like, I'm like, Oh, I should probably pitch them stuff. That's not like superhero stuff. And they're like, you're coming off of Thor. What if you did something a little more superhero-y, you know, like what if you really kind of like doubled down on like mm-hmm. the amazingly successful thing that you're about to do? I'm like, Oh, all right. So I came back like the next week with like the idea for Secret Headquarters, like mm-hmm. just like a, like a five minute pitch of like, this is Secret Headquarters. And they're like, that's it. That's the one. And they're like, it's always good to have a story, like an idea, like in your back pocket. So when you go on general meetings and meet executives and producers and you chit chat about life and all the other stuff and you can always like, you know, if there's an opportunity, you can bust out like, oh, yeah, and I'm working on this thing that's like this kid and his father and all that. Yeah. And I went to my first meeting, and uh, it was at Paramount with an amazing executive named Liz Raposo, who is now working uh, for Michael B. Jordan's company. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the meeting, we'd never met before. Like, we chit-chatted, and we talked about life, the universe, and everything. And at the end of it, I'm like, oh, yeah, and I'm working on this thing that's like this kid. And I gave the five-minute pitch for Secret Headquarters, and she looked at, like, her junior executive and looked at me, and she's like, have you told anybody else this story? <laughs> And I'm like, no, like you're really the first person to hear it. And she's like, great, don't, don't tell that to anybody else. And they bought it that day. Oh, what? And I'm, and I didn't understand what was happening. And I went back <laughs> to my agent. I'm like, yeah, she said this stuff. I don't really understand. And it's like, let me, let me make a phone call. And they bought it. They bought it, like in the room off a five minute pitch. Amazing. Wow. At which point I said, I don't know why everyone says breaking the Hollywood so hard. God like, damn it, Christopher. <laughs> And then it took 10 years, 10 years to like get it made. Yeah. So again, like I'm never going to complain because A, it got made. And this fact that anything gets made in this town is a miracle. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what anybody thinks about it or feels about it, like the fact that it got made is insane. But in this case, like we did work on it. I went off and did Thor. I came back. I wrote the draft. And then we just kind of like worked on it and tried to figure out a lot of things about it. It's like, how old should these kids be? Like, who is this movie for? At what price point could you do this movie? Could this be a $5 million movie like Paranormal Activity or whatever? You know, and like, probably not. Probably no. But then it's like, all right, now we have to find a producer. So we talked to Scott Stuber. We talked to various producers and finally like landed on Jerry Bruckheimer. Had just signed a deal and read the script and wanted that one so i'm like that's insane 
Yeah, I'm sure he done did all the movies you loved as a kid, right? Exactly. <laughs> Growing up. <laughs> but that process then took a while too. It's just like a, it became less. It, we we grounded it more. We, originally, the original story was instead of like mercenaries like broke into the place, supervillains broke into the place. Mm, okay. And so the kids had to use like the dad's superpower stuff to fight like supervillains. And then that shifted. And then like, again, like it just took time, you know, like it never went away. And like Paramount went through any number of regime changes, like, you know, and usually then the project goes away and we, it happened again. We assumed it would go and it didn't, you know, like it, having Jerry Bruckheimer on it helped in massively with that. Mm-hmm. Like they kept it alive, you know, like yeah. everybody, every step of the way has been kind of a champion for this project. And then, like, you know, they had met with directors, They and they showed um, Shulman and Juice, like, this script. They had three scripts. Like, we like you guys. We want to do a movie with you. We got these three projects. Like, what do you think? And they're like, this is the one. Secret Headquarters. That's and at awesome. that point, like, it happened fast. Mm-hmm. Like, it went from, like, waiting for t- nine, ten years to, like, just like that. Mm-hmm. And they were in production. They had this magic window of, like, they were just coming out of COVID, sort of, but not really. And, like, it, like, it it was like the stars aligned and they made a movie, but yeah, like true story, that's, 10 years. That's, yeah. that's beautiful. I, uh, yeah. The other thing is it's a father son story, which as Tasha knows, I mean, just sign me up right away. I'm it's Josh's I'm, jam. I'll, I'll just start crying. <laughs> I was crying. Gonna pull all five the strings. <laughs> yeah. We got, yeah, no, it was, and it's so, it, it really is like, it's so much fun. It's so like, we have this term, like I once heard these writers, uh, they were talking, I was walking past them in a coffee shop and, they were talking about what they're working on. And I heard the writer say, oh, my script's just kicking around. And so I always joke with Tasha about scripts that have been in my world for years. I'm always like, it's just kicking around. It's just kicking around. And in this case, your script, Secret Headquarters, was just kicking around. And it finally got made after 10 years. Like, I, I feel like that's the, right, that's the story writers need to hear. Yeah. It can happen. You know, like, it doesn't happen 99 times out of 100. But, like, yeah. on that 100th time, like, it, it can happen. It does happen. It, it happened to me. And if it can happen to me, I ain't no Shakespeare. You know, it can happen to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Can, can I ask a, sort of a, a business side of question? Um, sure. For all those 10 years and I'm sure all the different drafts and all the different notes you were getting as the regimes would change, did you get paid for each of those drafts? Or was there a lot of free work in those 10 years? It's a little bit of both. I got paid consistently on that one. Like they did every step in my contract and then added more steps. Did you have to ask for that or were they like, we're going to, no, they were super good about it. Okay. You know, like uh, I think Paramount has been an amazing home for me for the last any number of years, but they've always been fair and good about it. But the reality was, is that like finally get your movie made and like, it's going to go to the box office streaming or whatever. And it's like, yeah, now I'm going to get a big payday because it got made. And my agent's like, yeah, you're not, you're not going to get shit. Because they've already paid you all the money they can humanly pay you. Mm. Like, you know, again, because, like, it's all, like, you know, like, X amount of dollars against a million or whatever it is. Right. right? And I, I, I burned it all up, like, working on this draft for, like, 10 years. So rather than getting, like, a lump sum payment, like, at the end, because you got it produced, I got zero because I'd gotten all of that money previously. Not got to get it. into the weeds of deals mm-hmm. and stuff. No, I think that's important information. It is. And, I mean, again, like, this is also my first... Like the Marvel contract is a weird, different thing, and but this was my first gig, you know. So like, you know, like the the rate I get paid now is different than the rate I got paid then, and all this stuff. And it, I I'll never complain about it because like again, like every for ten years, I kept working on something I loved, and they kept paying me. So, win. Yeah. 
that's what, yeah, that's how I feel too. It's <laughs> that that's all I got, Tasha. What what are you thinking over there? I mean, I could talk to you for another hour about adaptation. No, for sure, I could sit I'm here and talk for another to. hour, but we are <laughs> going to. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, do that to you. Okay, just fun, I'll, fun last. I'll come question. back for part two. Just let me know. <laughs> oh what do you God. what? Just the, as the last thing, if there's any piece of IP that's out there that you could pick, what would it be? Ghostbusters. Oh, Ooh, interesting. But you know, like Jason Reitman's doing Ghostbusters too. Like, great, you know. But I mean, like Ghostbusters for me is like that's again, like it's so special. You don't want to mess it up. Like that's the fear. It's like yeah. I want to take something I love and just like fuck it up. But I Ghostbusters is my favorite movie of all time. If I could. Uh, look, I've worked on Star Wars. I've worked on Marvel. I wrote a He-Man movie that never got made. Like, I've done a lot of stuff. But Ghostbusters has got a special place in my heart that, like, I just, I would love to take a stab at. Yeah. For me, I get worried about those ones that you're so, like, for me, it would be Xena. And, oh, sure. Like, I was like, I don't even want to touch it because my version, like, I'm so in love with the version I watched that I don't know if I could bring the right thing it needs to reboot it. I worked with a guy who wrote like a, a pilot for a Xena reboot, um, Javi. Yeah, Javi. On yeah. Rima, and yep. it, I read it, and it's incredible. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't make it. I, they are short sighted. <laughs> yep. I, I don't know. <laughs> Tasha's like, but I'm happy they didn't make it. But <laughs> <laughs> like mine are always things that like nobody will ever do. It's like I would love to do more Briscoe County Junior. I would love to do yeah. more Misfits of Science. Like yeah. you know, like. Like at a certain point, like my list of, of things that I want to work on that gets more obscure as you go. It's like they should really bring back Manimal or Auto Man, like all these like 80s things I grew up with. Yeah. Look, I mean, like there's a million things. Like if they do a Harry Potter TV series, like. Hell yeah. I, I'd be all about that. Like Let's they're doing do Percy it. Jackson right now. Like I'm reading Percy Jackson with my kids. So it's hard not to like want to jump in and yeah. like want to do that. I feel that way too. Yeah. But, um, you know, if there's like a like a gold crown IP adaptation, you know, like for me, it would be Ghostbusters. But then it's just like, all right, like it's in good hands. Yeah. So like what's what's my Ghostbusters? And that's yeah. like the question I always like try to answer. It's like, what do I love about it? How do I create something original? Because you, you're not going to get. Well, that's I shouldn't say that. Like, is your energy not better off doing something original? that harnesses the same love and spirit. I talk about this all the time. It's like, I love Marvel. I love it so much. Like, and I, I've put so many hours and like so much blood, sweat and tears into Marvel. And I talked to a guy, an artist and I'm like, dude, he worked on a thing called killer demons with me. Or that was an original comic book that I wrote and he drew. And I'm like, you and I should walk into Marvel and do some stuff. Like I'm working on books there right now. And like, we, you should come over and we'll do Marvel stuff. And he was like, why would I do that? And I, my mind like literally melted. I like, I don't understand what you're saying. It's like, it's Marvel. Like, it's Ghostbusters. It's like, you know, but how can you not want to yeah. do that? And he's like, I'm going to just focus on my own stuff. I'm like, mm -hmm. respect. Yeah. So again, like, I, I don't know that I'm going to get a call from Ghostbusters, from Ghost Core. But I mean, like, I am constantly trying to come up with original properties that like, basically like, are Ghostbusters, but, you know, are my own thing as well. So like, again, like, like, if you look at my wall, there's Tiger's Apprentice, Pals in Peril, Alien Bounty Hunter, Fire Force, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Heist. Like, all these things are comic books and adaptations and, like, you know, books and all these things. And, like, 99% of everything I do is 
is adaptation. I did not know you were working on Tiger's Apprentice, by the way. You're working with Carlos? Uh, I am work. I worked with Carlos for a long time, and I'm currently working with Raman, who kind of took over duties okay. uh, on the movie. But I love Carlos. Yeah, you know. Like, but I, oddly enough, like the thing that really got made, Secret Headquarters. Yeah. So like I, I love adaptation. I'll always do adaptation. But like I, I always like I, I want to make it a point to always do my own stuff as well. You're working on all these adaptations for jobs, for mortgage payments. How do you find time to write? a spec, an original spec? Are you always making sure you have one on your board? So I fail is the answer. I fail to make time to write original stuff. I wrote the first issue of a comic book, an original comic book. And in my heyday of writing comic books, I could write an issue of a comic book in about two days. Mm -hmm. And I think it took me like a year. It took me a year to like get this issue out. Mm -hmm. And it was just like literally like with the work and the mortgage and the kids and all that stuff like time is like it's basically like you have to make a choice like what do i have to sacrifice and usually it's sleep mm-hmm. yeah which you know as i approach my my winter years like it's, <laughs> it's a little harder to do i remember i used when i worked on avengers animate the avengers animated series yeah. i would literally start working at 11 p.m and i'd work 11 to 3 and it was just four hours of pure silence and i wrote a shit ton yeah. And I can't, I can't take that anymore. That sounds amazing. I wish I could too. It is awesome. And I, I know a guy who like is, is my age. He's like, yeah, I wake up at 4 a.m. And I work from 4 to 7. And it's beautiful. I'm just like, you're out of here. Get, get the fuck out of here. Like, I can't wake up. What drugs is he doing? <laughs> yeah, Where do we get like, them? <laughs> as I sit there playing like Fortnite till 1 in the morning. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to, I don't think 4 a.m. is going to happen. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, that's it. That's it for today. We'll bring you on for round yeah. two of adaptation Round two's questions. coming for sure. This was amazing. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for doing writer therapy with us about this. I, I, like I said, I don't really actually get to talk to a lot of writers. Like, so I like, it's super awesome. You need a community, to, Chris. You need a community I, of writers. I'm a man in the need of a community. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. We're going to do quote of the day and wrap it up. Quote of the day, books and movies are like apples and oranges. They are both fruit, but taste completely different. Stephen King. Please remember to rate and subscribe. <laughs> follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter, Josh Hallman on Instagram, and Christopher, where can we find you? I am on the Twitter. Uh, I am at Yoast. At Yoast. Wow. In Early home. adopter. I like that's yeah. a flex. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> As always, the Act Two podcast is a production of Act Two, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode is edited by Paul Lundquist. Music by Four One Four Bag, which you can find on Spotify. Mm-hmm.